0: And O Lord, as we gather, we pray the same for us. We pray that the light of the Gospel would shine brightly today as we come to Your Word. We pray that our hearts would be more drawn to Christ. We pray that You would help the areas we may have where we are uncomfortable or weak in faith. We pray, O Lord, that You would strengthen us in our faith. Strengthen us in our devotion to Christ. Help us to love Him above anything else that shines and glitters in life. Teach us, O Lord, to make heaven our greatest treasure, to store up our our treasure there and not on earth. We pray for our children, both those who are inside the womb and those who are are outside the womb. We pray, O Lord, for their salvation too. We pray that these words, that the gospel message would fall upon their heart and that in time, Lord, that you would tend to it and grow much fruit from it. Oh, Lord, use this time to strengthen your people and to glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 14 today, verses 4 to 6, as we continue our study in John. John chapter 14, verses 4 to 6. This is a very interesting chapter, a chapter that's just filled with encouragement if we see it rightly, but it's not devoid of controversy. Um, Today we come to one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. Not controversial in the church, it's controversial from the world's standards. There's no question that Simon Peter is one character of the Bible that has given us many reasons to laugh. In fact, in the last chapter, we saw him once again put his foot into his mouth. He was almost always the first of the disciples to speak, and he often said things without putting a whole lot of thought into what was coming out of his mouth. But Peter should also make us examine ourselves, however, because like we so often tend to be, He was very confident in himself during the years in which he walked beside Christ as a disciple. And yet, what we've seen in the passages that have led us to this point, we've seen that that confidence actually turned out to be his undoing at the Last Supper, where he boasted of how he would be the one out of all the disciples who would never leave Christ's side, as the disciples argued among themselves, who was the greatest. Peter was sure that it was him only for Jesus to turn around and humble him by telling Peter that he would deny Jesus not once not twice but three times before the rooster crowed but Peter does sometimes get it right he's not he's not a character that we Uh, that we dislike. We we like him a lot, and part of the reason we like him is because sometimes he does get it right. One of those instances, probably the the foremost of those instances, came at a time when Jesus was ministering in the region of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, when suddenly Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them, who do men say the Son of Man is? Now obviously that's a question that refers to Himself clearly. Uh, we don't know which specific disciple of the group spoke out uh, on behalf of the group, but we're immediately told, and they said, so at least one of them said to Him, uh, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, and, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus' response to that was to say, But who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who then blurted out, speaking first, as usual, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But while Peter gets uh, credit for saying some kind of funny things from time to time, he doesn't get credit for that confession, which has been referred to throughout church history as the Great Confession. It wasn't Peter that figured out who Jesus was. Jesus says this to him. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's an important reminder in times like this. But I bring this instance up for two reasons. are very much related to the text that we come to today in John. First, I bring it up to remind us that the world has a lot of different ideas, a lot of wrong and unbiblical ideas about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that the only Jesus they're really hostile toward is the true and biblical Jesus. Secondly, I bring this up to remind us that the church that Christ started to build and continues to build even to this day, must be a church that, like Simon Peter, rightly confesses. And when I say that, I don't mean that we have to be a church that confesses sin, although we certainly have to be that as well. No, what I mean primarily is that we must be a people who believe in our hearts and confess Christ with our mouths. Confess who He is. Confess what He has done. And confess what is only found in Him. It was John Calvin who said that the mouth exists to reveal what is in the heart. And if we are a church whose hearts are filled with faith in Christ it will come from our lips as well. Our lips will reveal the content of our hearts. In our day, though, a time marked by what you call political correctness, it's considered extremely offensive to confess the biblical Christ. And for that reason, a lot of Christians who surely mean well have tried to place a lot of emphasis on being as unoffensive as possible, uh, if you get on social media, they're commonly referred to as the tone police, as if tone is clearly communicated on social media. And, and don't get me wrong, we shouldn't be offensive where we don't need to be. We should be a people who are characterized by gentleness. We should be a people who are characterized by graciousness, by patience, by kindness, love, especially when we're talking about Jesus but we must confess Him. We must confess the biblical Christ, and we must confess Him correctly and without compromise. If you study church history, one of the things that you'll find is that there have been many times when the church has come together to articulate exactly what it is that we believe about Christ. What, exactly what about Christ we confess. The Nicene Creed, for example was written in response to some very, very unbiblical, very wrong understandings about Jesus, specifically about who He was. The Arians, it was a group called the Arians, who were claiming that Jesus was a created being. But then there was the church saying, no, Jesus wasn't a created being, He's an eternal being because He is God. Uh, So saying that Jesus is a created being is as wrong as saying that Jesus was John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. So the leaders of the church came together, uh, studied the testimony of the Scriptures as they relate to Christ and His person, and they condemned Arianism as a heresy, called Arianism, and they wrote the Nicene Creed to articulate exactly what it is that we believe about Jesus it says this. This is uh, starting at the beginning. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And then it gets to the part about Jesus. And this is much longer than the part about the Father. Because it was Jesus's identity that was really coming into question at this time. It continues saying, "...and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human." He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. The creed then goes on to articulate a couple things about the Holy Spirit. But the main thrust of that creed was to summarize and articulate what the Bible says about the person of Jesus. Who specifically we confess if we confess Christ. This is the Christ that we confess. And it's the Christ that the world rejects. And among the reasons that the world rejects Christ is the offense that He causes. Specifically, the offense that he causes by his exclusive claims. In the passage that we come to today, we come to the claim that was, according to James Montgomery Boyce, quote, probably the most exclusive statement ever made by anyone, end quote. Now you've probably noticed the irony of our age, and it is a a sad irony, it's a terrible irony, that while the world has slipped into post-modernity, there's been a very high emphasis on tolerance. And yet the people who put those silly little tolerance stickers on their cars are completely intolerant when it comes to the true biblical Jesus and Christianity. Because if Christianity is true, if what Jesus said is true, then every other world religion is false. If Christianity is true, if what Jesus said is true, then everyone who is outside of Christianity is in for an eternity of enduring God's holy and righteous wrath in hell. After all, Jesus said, as we'll see in our passage today, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. And that brings us to the point of this passage that we'll be looking at today. The point of this passage is is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father but through Him. Therefore, wisdom demands that we make sure that we are in Him. We must confess Him, and we must profess Him. Jesus has just told the disciples that where he's going, they cannot come, but he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, and he will return to bring them there so that where he is, they may be also. This is followed by an interesting dialogue that takes place uh, in the three verses that follow that we'll be looking at today in verses four to six. So let's take a look at these verses and we'll unpack them. Jesus continues by saying, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. What an interesting thing it is to see that while Jesus says that the disciples know the way to where He's going, uh, the question that Thomas, who's perhaps better known uh, as Doubting Thomas, the question that he asks reveals that he doesn't know, that they don't know. Uh, he's thinking, okay, if I don't know where Jesus is going, how am I supposed to know how to get to where he's going? It's, it's a valid, uh, it's a logical line of argumentation, uh, it's, a, it's a valid uh, thought that he's got. They're confused, or at least Thomas is, and, and I think it's safe to assume that the rest of the disciples were probably just as confused as he was. They were probably thinking along the same lines. It seems as if there's a contradiction between what Jesus is saying and what Thomas asks. It seems like there's a contradiction between Jesus saying, and you know the way, and then Thomas saying, how do we know the way? But what we must see and what Jesus wants Thomas to see is that Thomas and the rest of the disciples do know how to get where Jesus is going. The intellectual understanding of the disciples, Thomas included, at this point, was just so small that they knew so little. They understood so little. What they know at this point is just minuscule in comparison to what they will understand In only a few days, when Jesus has died and raises from the grave and appears to the disciples, then they will know so much more than they know at this point. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, About our Lord's purpose coming into the world, about his sacrificial death and substitution for us on the cross, their ignorance was glaring and great. It might well be said that they knew in part only and were children in understanding. End quote. I think that's very accurate. I also think that's probably very charitable. Uh, Their ignorance, this ignorance of such important details about Jesus would become evident only a few days later when Jesus, after having risen from the grave, came across a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And their feeling, what we see is that they were feeling like they were just at a point of despair where they've lost all hope because as far as they knew, Jesus had died and He hadn't risen from the grave. But what those two disciples knew and understood going into their encounter with Jesus paled in comparison. It was so small in comparison to what they would come to know and understand by the time Jesus departed from their presence. The eleven disciples here in our text are in the same predicament as Jesus speaks to them on the night of His arrest. They know so so little there's so much that they have no understanding of there's so much that they are ignorant of and yet they knew so much they knew so much they, they knew more than the gentiles to be sure they they knew more than the vast majority of the jews They knew things that even the highly trained, the highly educated, the the highly sophisticated scribes and Pharisees didn't know in the least bit. They knew and they believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And to know Him, and to believe in Him savingly, which they certainly all did at this point, was to know and to confess and to understand the most important things in all the universe. See, the point that Jesus is bringing the disciples to is that they do know the way to where He's going, specifically because they do know and believe in Him, savingly. Because Jesus Himself is the way to His Father's house in heaven. Wherever you are today, friends, on your Christian journey, wherever you are, however much you know, whether you know much or little by the world's standards, you know something more than the unbelieving world does if you believe in Jesus savingly. You have a grasp of a greater truth than the world's most dignified, most educated, most sophisticated unbelievers. You have knowledge that has saved you and which will bring you to the place of rest and peace that Jesus has prepared for you. While the unbelieving geniuses of the world will one day be wishing that you would just put one drop of water on their tongues to give them a moment of comfort in their state of torment. The young Christian, if you are new to the faith, you are particularly susceptible and vulnerable to attacks from the world. Uh, There very well could even be people who are actively trying to persuade you that Christianity is false. To dissuade you from being a Christian. Satan himself would undoubtedly be trying to undo your faith. But while you might be young in the faith, and while you might still have so, so much to learn about the faith, the fact is that you know something that truly and eternally matters you know that jesus is god incarnate you know that he came to die for sinners you know that by grace through faith in christ alone you have been reconciled to god friends this is really 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 important stuff don't don't downplay how important it is to know these things and to believe these things this is knowledge that is actually worth having. That there is nothing in all of the entire universe that is more worth knowing and more worth believing than this. Than Jesus. If you know these things about Jesus, if you believe in Jesus savingly, how blessed are you because it was revealed to you by God Himself through the Holy Spirit. Now you may feel like you don't know much. Maybe you'll listen to a great preacher like R.C. Sproul or or John MacArthur or Steve Lawson or you know one of those guys, and you'll think, "Wow, these people know so much. I know so little. I don't know anything." You might feel like you don't know much, and the truth is, I mean, we all do have room to grow in our understanding and knowledge of God, including all those great theologians. But if you believe in Christ, you believe in, and, and you know something. That eternally matters. As we consider our text and the way that Jesus responds to Thomas in Thomas's moment of doubt here, we should first see the graciousness that Christ exhibits toward Thomas. He could very easily have said, Thomas, just play, just pay closer attention and you'll be able to follow along. Just just hear me out and you'll be able to follow along. He could have said, What is it, Thomas, with you and all your misapprehensions and, and all your doubts? Why are you always asking questions for things that you should know the answers to? He he could have said, Thomas, what's wrong with you? Don't you trust me? He could have said a million things that would have shamed Thomas and that would have put Thomas back in his place, so to speak. But that's not what Jesus does. He responds graciously. He responds gently, kindly, lovingly, saying, affirming that Thomas does know the way to where Jesus is going because he knows and believes in Jesus. He responds with one of the most famous declarations of his deity by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we should see that this is yet another I am statement. In fact, this is the sixth of Jesus' I am sayings that we find scattered throughout John's gospel. He does not claim to be a way to the Father, he's not one of many ways to get to heaven. He puts the definitive article there. He says that he is the way. Which necessarily implies, by the way, that there's no other way. The temple is not the way. Trusting in their ability to adhere to the law of Moses, as the scribes and the Pharisees did, isn't the way. Trusting in their own goodness, trusting in their own moral uprightness, that wasn't the way either. Jesus is saying that He is the way. And that there's no other way to reach the Father's house. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to be saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. There's no other way for a person to enter into heaven but through Him. The one and only way is Jesus. You must repent. You must turn from trusting in other ways and believe exclusively and entirely upon Him to get where He's going, which the disciples have done at this point. Now let me tell you something important, friends, and you probably already know it. The world hates this truth. The world absolutely despises this truth. This truth is so offensive to the unbelieving world. People have actually died because of this passage. People have willingly laid down their lives for this. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people have died for this truth. The world Hates that Christians believe this. But if you think that Jesus sounds really, really exclusive, excluding when He says this, and let's face it, He is being very exclusive with this statement, then consider how exclusive Jesus was in His other I Am declarations that have preceded this one. When He said, I am the bread of life, He didn't say, I am a bread of life. He was claiming that there was no other food that could heal and and nourish and satisfy the hunger of our souls. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world and he who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, Not. A light of the world. That's not what he says. He says, I am the light of the world. The necessary implication there, the necessary conclusion there, was that if you, a person is not following him, if you're not, if you're, if you're following anything or anyone other than him, you are lost in the darkness and you will surely perish in the darkness. When Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep, not a door of the sheep. He meant that if you do not come through Him, you're outside the sheepfold of God, and you aren't among the sheep that Christ would lay down His life on behalf of. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection of the life, he who believes in Me will live even if he dies. He didn't say, I am a resurrection and a life. No, in that statement, He was saying that He alone, only Jesus has the power and the authority over death to conquer and defeat death every single one of the i am statements that jesus made was extremely extremely exclusive they were things that were true of him and of nobody else they were things that he alone was qualified and capable of offering and that nobody else is Every one of them carries the assertion that salvation is found only by believing in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the Father, and so on and so forth. This is the true and biblical Jesus. But this Jesus, because He is so exclusive is the Jesus that the world hates. This is the Jesus that the world doesn't know. This is the Jesus that the world refuses to trust in for salvation. Make no mistake about it. If Jesus had only not used the word the, the world would be a lot more comfortable with Him. If only He hadn't used the definitive article. If only He'd said, I'm a way... I'm a truth. I'm a life. What's true for me is what's true for you. If only he would have said something like that, he would have seemed a lot more inclusive, wouldn't he? He'd seem a lot more diverse. But truth, friends, truth is always exclusive. Nobody gets upset about other forms of exclusivity. Think about it. If you were to go to the bank, knowing that you've got exactly $832 in the bank, you expect the teller to tell you that you have $832 in your account. If she says you have $26, you don't think to yourself, eh, that's close enough, I mean, what's a number? No, you, you, you know, you instinctively understand that if the teller gives you any answer other than $832, it's wrong, whether it's too much or too little. Truth is always, always exclusive. And the truth about man's dilemma and the means that God has provided for sinners to be reconciled to God are truth. And thus they are exclusive. Jesus is the one and only way for sinners to be reconciled to and forgiven by God. There is nothing that is more foundational. There is nothing that is more fundamental to the Christian faith and the Christian gospel than this. To deny this is to deny Christ. To deny this is to deny the gospel. We therefore must confess and profess this truth that Jesus is the one and only means that God has provided for man in his sin to be reconciled to a holy God who hates sin. Jesus is the one and only way to heaven. We get to heaven by following Him. And we follow Him because we believe in Him. We believe He is the one and only way to heaven. And when the world hears this, it strikes them as being just absolutely scandalous because it declares God's authority. It declares God's utter sovereignty, His supremacy over their lives. It declares that they have no other means of getting to Him, no other help. It declares that they... Are in no condition, that they are in no position to be setting the terms of negotiation and reconciliation with God. It declares that, contrary to everything that the world teaches, people aren't basically good, and that following your own heart or doing what you think is good or right or virtuous is the single stupidest thing that a person can do because the heart is desperately wicked. That's truth. It declares, the Gospel declares the utter wickedness of the tolerance of sin. Not only of sin, but the tolerance of sin. And of celebrating acts which God has said are sinful. The natural man, friends, the unregenerate man, hates these truths. The unregenerate man hates being told the condition that he's in. Helpless. Helpless. Hopeless on the broad road that leads to destruction. Humanity hates this message. Humanity does not hate exclusivity. Even postmodernists don't hate exclusivity. After all, nobody claims that you know you shouldn't lock your your front door at night, uh, and you, you, nobody's saying you shouldn't allow uh, or that you should allow strangers into your homes. But they hate the idea that they must yield themselves to God's sovereign rule and reign in their lives. They hate the message that they must trust entirely in the one way, the one mediator that God has provided to reconcile sinners to Himself. Humanity might entertain the thought of being reconciled to some God that they've imagined in their own minds, but human pride prevents people from being willing to do what God demands to be reconciled to Him by nature. People want to go to heaven. If you go to the mall today and ask all the unbelievers you can find, do you want to go to heaven? They're all going to say yes. They're all going to say yes. Of course they want to go to heaven. But they want to have their own way to it. They want to be reconciled to God on their own terms. But that entire attitude is rebellion because it's to exalt ourselves over God or at least to claim to be on equal footing, equal ground with God. And we're not. We're not in a position where we can set the terms and conditions of reconciliation with God. The fact is that to enter into heaven on our own merit requires that a person has never sinned and that his heart is pure, untainted by unrighteousness, unstained by wickedness. David writes this in Psalm 24, verses 3-5. to He says this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? Let's just stop there for a second, because we should notice that there's already the implication that the answer is at least, not everyone. So David continues by giving us the answer. He who has clean hearts, clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And the person who is being honest with themselves will immediately realize that they far they fall far, far short of this holy standard of righteousness. That's only measured by God's holiness and his righteousness. Contrary to all the skeptics of our faith, unlike everybody, Jesus never fell short of God's holy standard. He perfectly upheld God's law at all times and thus he alone is qualified to ascend the hill of the Lord and to stand in his holy place. Nobody else is because everybody else has sinned. It's for this reason that he claims to be the exclusive means by which sinners can be reconciled to God and join him in heaven. Because it's through his perfect sinless life and through his atoning sacrificial death that we may receive the reward that David says one receives if they qualify to stand in the Lord's holy place. He says that such a person shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation that's what we need we don't have any righteousness all we have is wickedness but we need God's righteousness we need Christ's perfect righteousness we have none we need God's righteousness and that's only received it's only imputed it's only credited to us by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone And that word alone is the key word in all those things. Grace alone can save us. Faith alone is the instrument by which we receive grace. And the object of that faith is Christ alone. Not grace and, not faith and, not Christ and. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, he says. Now we should remember that every time Jesus makes an I am statement, he is in effect claiming to be God. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures, which were, of course, originally written in Hebrew. But in, if you're going through the Septuagint, when you come to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God reveals his name as I am who I am, which is where we get the name Yahweh or Jehovah, we see that the Septuagint uses the Greek words there, ego eimi. Ego eimi, which are the same words that translate into I am whenever Jesus makes these exclusive declarations. He is thus claiming to be God. When Jesus says, I am the way, he means that He is the one and only mediator who stands between a holy God and fallen sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes to the Romans. The wage of sin is death, he tells them. But the fact that Jesus is the way is good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news. It's the gospel because it declares the fact that God has made a way for us to be, as Paul writes, justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's from Romans chapter 3, verses 24-26. to R.C. Sproul made an interesting observation on verse 6. He wrote this, he says, quote, The structure of this statement is such that Jesus was not giving a string of descriptive terms. He was not saying, I am A, the way, B, the truth, and C, the life. Rather, this statement is in an elliptical form, so that Jesus was saying, I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation or revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life." We need the way to be revealed to us because by nature, all of humanity is lost in the darkness. And we need the truth to be revealed to us because we won't figure it out for ourselves. And we won't believe on our own. Humanity's predicament is that by nature we are ignorant of and blind to spiritual truth. That's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man cannot understand spiritual truth because those are spiritually discerned. How can the natural man who has no spiritual discernment understand or discern spiritual truths? He can't. He can't. All he can believe is a lie humanity is able to gather some truth about God by natural revelation but what do we do with that truth by virtue of our nature what do we do with truth about God by virtue of our nature Romans chapter 1 tells us we suppress it in unrighteousness we bury it we hide it we put it the furthest thing we can from our minds Romans chapter 1, verse 25 tells us that humanity exchanges the truth about God for a lie. And that, friends, is exactly how this whole mess started. That's exactly how Adam and Eve fell into sin. The devil lied to Eve. He asked her, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Think about that for a second. What a, what a silly question. In, in other words, uh, He's asking her, isn't God a tyrant? Isn't he cruel toward you? Isn't he withholding his blessing from you? He's not really providing for you, is he? That's really what the question boils down to. I mean, think about it. What were they supposed to do? Starve? No, what God had instructed was that Adam and Eve could eat from every tree in the garden except one, and that is the tree of good and evil knowledge. But Satan's question was concealing a lie. It was suggesting to Eve that God's instructions, that His precepts, were not for their good, but that they were restricting their freedom. The lie was that they could become like God by distrusting Him and breaking His precepts. He says to her, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's turning away from the truth. That lie has been a lie that humanity has believed ever since. That we can be like God. What did Adam and Eve do as soon as they fell into sin though? They became aware of the fact that they were naked. And they were ashamed. And so what did they do? They hid themselves from God. And mankind has been doing That same thing ever since. The truth is that Adam and Eve and all of their posterity, all of their offspring, down to us this very day, they did die on that day. They died spiritually. That brings us to our need not only for the way to be revealed to us, and not only for the truth to be revealed to us, but also for life to be revealed to us. Because they did die and in them we died. You and I were born under death's curse, under death's power. We had no spiritual life within us. We were spiritually dead. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick, not wounded, not Half, halfway to death, but you're, you're hanging in there. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." Now, Paul's not writing to a bunch of criminals who are in prison. He's not writing to the most degenerate people that he can find. He's writing to Christians. He was describing the conditions from which they had been rescued. Instead of seeking God, instead of obeying God, They did what humanity does by nature, walking the broad road that leads to destruction, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, they were spiritually dead, doing what Satan and the demonic forces of this world demanded. But obviously, for them to go from that condition to being Christians, something had to change. Something broke them free from this life of death. Something broke them free from bondage to sin. So Paul continues writing, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice why Paul says that God gave us life with Christ. It's not because of anything in us. He says it's because of God's great love. Apart from Christ, friends, there is only spiritual death. There is no life outside of Him. There is no spiritual life outside of Him. Apart from Jesus, we are both unwilling and unable to do anything pleasing to God, anything for our salvation. But Jesus came in order that His people may have life, may have spiritual vitality, the ability to not only desire to live for God and to please God, but the faith to continue it. That we may have this life abundantly. You see, it would be meaningless to us if Jesus was only the way and the truth and not the life. If He was only the way and the truth, we would still be dead in our sins. You can preach the Gospel all day long to a corpse, and what's that corpse going to do in response to it? Absolutely nothing. That's all a dead person can do. Apart from being granted life in Christ, apart from regeneration, We would remain spiritually lifeless, dead in our sins, never able to and never desiring to follow or believe the truth about God that Jesus reveals. Spiritual life, we must therefore understand, is not the consequence or or the reward of believing, it is the cause. Let me say that again. Spiritual life is not the reward for believing, it is the cause. A corpse is never going to respond to any kind of instruction. God must make us spiritually alive in order that we may believe. In Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, that's an illustration of this principle. What could those dry bones do for themselves? If, if God didn't do anything and Ezekiel just went into the valley of dry bones and started preaching, what could happen If God didn't do something, nothing. Who among the dry bones was going to respond? Not even one. But this is what we read in Ezekiel. This is what God instructed Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 4 to 6. God instructs Ezekiel prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you so that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, will make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. In order for these corpses, in order for these dry bones to know that He is the Lord, He first had to give them life. And what were the means that God instructed to cause that? Preaching the Word of God. Preaching the Word of God. Friends, the world hates it. I get it. They hate how exclusive Christianity is. But we must be a confessing church. This is why we need people who go out onto street corners and preach to the unsaved. We need people who do stuff like that. Praise the Lord. We have people in our own church who do that. We believe what Jesus has declared in our text today. That's why we must go out and not only confess Christ, but profess Christ because we believe what Jesus says about Himself. We believe that there is no other way to be reconciled to God but through faith in Jesus. We believe that He is the only way to be freed from the penalty and from the power of sin. We believe that He is the only way to the Father. We also believe that faith comes through hearing. And so we also believe that this presents us with the responsibility of proclaiming, of preaching His Word, of sharing the Gospel, knowing that Jesus, as God incarnate, and as the only way to the Father, has the sovereign authority to demand our exclusive devotion. Rather than responding to Thomas's doubting question... By giving him a list of things to do, ways to be that he has to follow, rather than outlining a list of spiritual achievements and levels that he has to reach, Jesus points Thomas to Jesus himself. Following Jesus is the way to go where he was going. Where was he going? His father's house. Where's his father's house? In heaven. Following Jesus is the only way to get there. It's the only way to be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through Him. Therefore, wisdom demands that we must make sure that we are in Him. Truth demands that we confess Him and love. Love for both Christ and for our neighbors, demands that we profess Him to this dark and dead world. This is how Christ builds His church. We can be sure, friends, we can be sure that He will use our preaching, that He will use our sharing of the gospel to accomplish His sovereign purposes. His word never returns to Him void, despite the world's opposition to the exclusive nature of Christ who is the way. The only way. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it instructs us. For the way it teaches us. For the way it confronts us but also for the way that it comforts us we pray o oh lord that these exclusive claims that jesus made would ring true in our hearts and lord we pray that you would give us much, much graciousness much kindness much patience with those who hate the exclusive nature of christ and his gospel But we also pray that you would give us courage and conviction to share the truth about Jesus. To share the light that we've been given. To shine this light into the darkness for the glory of Christ. We pray, O Lord, for our neighbors, maybe even for our family members who don't know you, who dwell in darkness. And we pray for courage to proclaim the Gospel to them, but also wisdom and compassion. O Lord, teach us to be more like Jesus. We thank You for the great responsibility of the Great Commission, and we pray that by the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it would bear much fruit for us to see. O Lord, we know that You are sovereign over all things, and that nothing is impossible for You. And so we pray that even in this dark, spiritually dark climate that our nation has fallen into, we pray for much light to be shined into that darkness, and for You to draw many, many to Christ for His glory. We pray this in His name. Amen. by teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And keep your closer close to Jesus. Take me deeper.